was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first, I should feed the children my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Jesus left Tyre, and he went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man, the speech impediment was brought to him, and the people, look at this, begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, and then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. It sounds like, you know, our children, when we tell them not to do something, that just really, you know, creates that curiosity in them to do it anyways. Verse 37, they were completely amazed. They said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time together corporately to worship you. God, I thank you for your living and powerful word that is still speaking to us today. This word is not like some other book that we read and we can sit down and not pick up again, but this is the living word of God, a revelation of you to us. And so God, as we approach this living and powerful word together, as we gather around this word, I pray that you would speak to each of us in this room in a fresh way, in a real way, in a powerful way this morning. Pray that you would challenge our hearts. Lord, convict our lives so that we would better reflect the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, help me to speak not a single word of my own this morning, but help me to speak that which comes from you and you alone. Help me to proclaim your word with boldness, with simplicity, and with clarity. And God, help me to decrease and help you to increase and be the focus of our time together today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you, if you were with us probably over a year ago, um, when we were at the community center, some of you are going to remember this story or remember this about me. Others of you are going to find something out about me here in just a moment. Um, but when it comes to, for me, when it comes to traveling, when it comes to driving, when it comes to going from point A to point B, I usually don't do it in the conventional manner. Um, I know nowadays it's pretty simple. We can pull up our phones um, or our GPS in our car. We can put in the destination. And almost always, almost always, it will immediately give us the quickest route from point A to point B. But if you notice when you look at your phone, there's usually two or three other route options. Sometimes it's not the quickest. It might be less miles, um, and, and sometimes it just gives you a third option, which is the longest, but usually sometimes that third option, at least in my opinion, is often the most scenic route. 
And, and I don't know about you, but when it comes to traveling, when I go on vacation with my family, I remember even as a kid before we had GPS on our phones, I was always in charge of the map and we would get to our destination. And before we got up the next morning, my dad and I would pull out the map and we would start mapping out the next pathway, the next direction. And anytime we could get off the interstate and, and, and travel back roads, we would do it. Uh, I love I love to travel. I love to drive. I love you know traveling in places. And, and sometimes you know the interstate is usually the quickest route, but it's not always the most scenic route. Sometimes you just and maybe some of you like to just get on the interstate and basically hit cruise control and not have to think about you know going left or right or stopping at the stop sign or whatever. And, and that's that's fair. I think there's time for that. But I love I love the more unconventional routes when it comes to traveling. And, and, and I'm one that even though if it's going to take me, you know, 30, 45 minutes, an hour longer, you know, if I've got the time, I'm okay with that. So I can enjoy even God's beautiful creation. Anybody out there that love the more unconventional traveling routes? Okay, several of you. How many of you just hit cruise control and you find the interstate as quickly as possible? Okay, I figured. <laughs> and if you are directionally challenged, I can tell you right now, you definitely don't go the scenic routes. Uh, there's a lot of turning, there's a lot of curves, there's a lot of, oops, this is a dead end, or road closed, you need to find a new route, and, and, and you got to have a, the capacity to know, okay, I'm going north, and so even if I go this way, I can still go, you know, north in that direction. But that's me. I love, love, love the unconventional routes. What's very interesting is when we think about the ministry of Jesus, and we would consider his ministry, especially through the Gospels. So far, especially in the Gospel of Mark, so far the ministry of Jesus has been anything but conventional, at least from the Jewish perspective. Let me give you just a few examples. His chosen disciples, they lacked the glamorous resume that we would often expect. They were fishermen. They were zealots. They were tax collectors, not typically the group of people that we would think as ideal to be followers to bring in or usher in this incredible new kingdom, but that's who Christ chose. We see that he touched or closely associated with, what, with that which was deemed unclean. Remember the leper uh, early on in Mark's gospel the leper was considered untouchable. No one would even come near the leper. But what does Jesus do? Not only does he come near to the man, but he touches him and he brings healing upon this man's life. We read in Mark chapter 5, we talked about the demon-possessed man who also was considered unclean and outcast, excommunicated. But what does Jesus do? He draws near to the man and he offers him hope and peace. We read a little bit later, the woman with the, the bleeding issue, again, was deemed unclean, but she touched the hem of Jesus' robe, and she was immediately healed. We see that his ministry was unconventional from the Jewish perspective because he actively engaged in ministry on the Sabbath. He wasn't afraid to heal somebody, and he does. He heals a man with a, a deformed hand on the Sabbath, and it, and it rubbed the Pharisees and the teachers in the wrong way. Because from their perspective, the Sabbath was off limits. No ministry, no healing could take place. But again, this was an unconventional Jesus. His authority is surpassed that of every religious leader and teacher of the law that day. When we read and look at Mark's gospel time after time after time again, there's reference to the amazement of the crowd 
because there was something unique, something different about this Jesus that was unlike anything that the teachers of the law or the Pharisees have ever offered. He offered something unique, something that was unconventional. The religious Jews, they were uncomfortable with Jesus's unconventional practices. And sometimes, if we're honest, when we consider some of the things that are at play, they might make us a little uncomfortable as well. So much so, though, they were so uncomfortable with, with the way and the ministry of Jesus and, and the way in which he, he lived his life and did ministry, they were on and they were looking for ways to diminish his influence altogether. Uh, we know all throughout Mark's gospel, all throughout all the gospels, the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, what are they trying to do? They're trying to trap Jesus trying to find something that he says that's just a little bit off or, or find something that he's doing to trap him so they can arrest him and hopefully get this man out of the equation altogether. They were trying to diminish the influence of this unconventional Jesus. His ways did not line up with their traditions. We talked about that last week in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were all about tradition. And I said last week, there's nothing wrong with tradition, but when tradition trumps the gospel, when it trumps the good news, that's when it becomes an issue. And, and we talked last week about how we need to hold loosely to our traditions and instead have hearts that are pure and make certain that we are all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They didn't, this unconventional Jesus did not even fit their interpretation of the law of Moses. They were looking for somebody different, expecting somebody different, but he came in differently. He even permitted the very people that they excluded, the Jews, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, he permitted them to join him in his work in ministry. The unconventional Jesus. Nothing he did was conventional from the perspective of the Jewish law, from the perspective of what they understood or how they used to do things, which is why his authority was so different and so unique. Recall the religious leaders, even the disciples at times, we talked about this over the last few weeks, they failed to grasp the significance of Jesus's mission. And, and we talked about how sometimes we have this tendency to put Jesus in this box and we expect him to work within the parameters of this box, but anything beyond that we can't even imagine or, or even think about because it doesn't fit within that box. It doesn't fit within our conventional ways. And I talked about how sometimes we, a few weeks ago we looked at how important it is for us to kind of step back and, and remove the parameters, remove the box so we can see that Jesus operates often beyond the parameters of the box that we've put him in. And so sometimes I talked about how we need to, you know, get to the top of the movie theater. We talked about how, you know, sometimes if we sit in the very front of the theater, we can't get the whole, the whole picture and our necks are hurting because we're looking left and right trying to see what's going on. But when we go to the very back, to the very top, our perspective changes. We see from a different light and from a different perspective. And sometimes our perspective is too small and we put God inside this small little box. Here's what we know. This unconventional Jesus came to usher in an unconventional kingdom that brought forth an unconventional message. 
Let me say that one more time because this is really the jump off point of what I want to talk about this morning. This unconventional Jesus came to usher in an unconventional kingdom. This kingdom that, that Jesus was ushering in was not some kingdom that they were really expecting or looking for. Remember even later, when we're getting ready to celebrate Palm Sunday, the Jews, they were looking for some mighty warrior king to come, come riding in on the, the warrior horse into Jerusalem. But what does Jesus do? He comes in a humble fashion on the back of a donkey, not what they were expecting, but he was ushering in an unconventional kingdom, a kingdom that was all about humility and service instead of power and dominance. This is the kingdom that he's ushering in and he's bringing forth an unconventional message, the good news, the hope of Jesus Christ. I want to look at our text this morning and explore the unconventional aspects of this kingdom that Christ has ushered in. Let's begin number one. This unconventional kingdom, the ministry of Jesus is not limited to certain geographical locations or, or specific demographics. Let me, let me unpack this and let me explain this morning. Jesus is on the move here in our text, all right? And, and just so you know, in the three years that Jesus did ministry, he was traveling quite a bit. But there's ver a very specific move that Jesus makes here in Mark chapter 7 that is very unique uh, to our understanding of his kingdom. Look at Mark chapter 7, verse 24. It says, Then Jesus left Galilee, and he went north. That's important. He went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. And then later on in verse 31, Jesus left Tyre, and he went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. Jesus here, he is on the move. And what he is doing is he is crossing boundaries, and he is infiltrating new territories despite any political or social animosity that may exist. And that's very, very key. He's going to a region where there is quite a bit of turmoil between the people of Tyre and Sidon and the people down in the Galilee region. They didn't have the greatest of relationships, yet Jesus intentionally travels north, trying to keep it a secret, unable to do so. But there is some very significant ministry that takes place. I want you to picture this with me this morning. I want you to see what Jesus is doing as he is on the move. He's left a predominantly Jewish territory. He just fed 5,000 men plus women and children, and that audience was predominantly Jewish. He just got into a dispute with who? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, some of the, the elites when it came to the Jewish individuals. And now he has retreated north to a predominantly, and this is key, a predominantly Gentile region. He encounters a Syrophoenician woman. He encounters a deaf man. He will, next week we'll see, he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children, predominantly a Gentile audience, which is key because we see here that Jesus' ministry is not, once again, it's not in this little box where he's only ministering to the Jews or to the spiritual elite, but now he travels north and he goes into a, an unreached area. He goes into the, the Gentile nation or the, uh, the Gentile area where he he is going to do ministry that is going to be effective. This region was not unfamiliar, though, with Jesus's ministry. People from Tyre and Sidon, they've come to Jesus before. Look at uh, Mark chapter three, look at verses seven and eight. Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him. Look where they came from. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from east, or from east of the Jordan River, and even, look, even as far north 
as Tyre and Sidon. So these people are not unfamiliar with the ministry of Jesus. They've, they've come to him before. He was in the, the, the area of Galilee when he was calling his disciples and when ministry was taking place, these Gentile people in Tyre and Sidon in the north, they traveled down to see and hear more from this unconventional Jesus. There was serious tension and animosity that existed between these two groups of people. So much so that one historian, Josephus, described the group of people, Tyre and Sidon, as this. He described them as their bitterest enemies. Um, there was such animosity, there was such hatred, there was such tension, even politically and socially speaking, between the people north and Tyre and Sidon and some of the spiritual elite in Jerusalem and in the region of Galilee. We also see, though, not only is he crossing these boundaries and, and despite spiritual or despite political turmoil, Jesus is also crossing cultural stigmas and he is extending his mercy, look at this, to the outcast of society. Isn't this what Jesus does all throughout the gospels? The leper, the demon-possessed man, uh, the Samaritan woman, the, issue, the woman with the issue of blood, all of those that the Jews are like, uh-uh, I'm not gonna touch them, I'm not going near them. Jesus is like, they need to hear the good news just as much as anybody else does. And so he's not putting this box around uh, uh, his ministry saying, I can only stay here among the clean people. No, his ministry has no boundary when it comes uh, to the good news, the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ. This woman that he encounters, look at Mark chapter seven. Let's read our text again. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. She begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plate. This woman, she is a Gentile pagan. She comes from a city that the Old Testament actually deemed a wealthy and godless oppressor of Israel. So again, I want you to see the, uh, the animosity, the hatred toward this city. Look, look at the Old Testament, Amos, and there's several different places. My son's name is Amos, so I chose this one, all right? Um, yes, a little bit bias here. Uh, but Amos chapter one, verse nine, listen to this word. This is what the Lord says. The people of Tyre have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They broke their treaty of brotherhood with Israel, selling whole villages as slaves to Edom. So Tyre and Sidon, they were viewed as a city, as a people, as a community. They were oppressors against the people of Israel. So for the very fact that Jesus would intentionally, as he often does, intentionally travels north to a place where most often Jewish people would not even spend a few minutes in. Jesus goes north and he encounters this Gentile pagan. Association with a Gentile woman from a Jewish perspective would have been viewed as an unclean action. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 10. Peter told them, you know, it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But remember, this isn't some conventional Jesus. He is ushering in an unconventional kingdom that is going to bring forth an unconventional message. Therefore, uh, he enters into this uh, woman's life and begins to uh, allow her to experience his presence. She understood her place in the realm of that culture. 
But her desperate faith in conjunction with her willingness to humble herself brought forth great results. I want you to hear this this morning. This woman, this Gentile woman, her daughter is at home. She's possessed by an evil spirit. She's not looking for a full course meal here. She just wants a little drop of the healing power of Jesus that she heard about. She, what's very interesting is this woman seems to understand. Remember how the disciples who have been with Jesus, who watched the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, but when they leave, Jesus makes the point that even the disciples still didn't grasp uh, the significance of the miracle, who this Jesus really is. I mean, they, they, they saw the miracle with their own eyes and they, and they saw and experienced five loaves of bread be multiplied and feed 5,000 men plus women and children. But when they get away from that miracle, they still do not grasp, they, they still have Jesus in this box and they don't grasp the significance of the miracle. What's very interesting is it is a Gentile pagan, a woman who lives in a, in a region, a community that is an oppressor of Israel that at some level understands the significance of that miracle better, better than even the disciples do. She didn't even see it with her own eyes, but she recognized all she was looking for, she wasn't wanting or hungering for a full course meal here. All she wanted to experience, just like the woman with the issue of blood, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, I can experience his healing. They understood it even better than those that were with Jesus and saw the miracle unfold. Sometimes I think we're in similar situations where, where we experience the presence and the power of God, but somehow we still, we still miss what he's really trying to do. We, we put Jesus in this box and we fail to really grasp the significance of what he wants to do in my life, the life of the community that he has placed me in. There's some important lessons that really emerge uh, from this text that are important for the church that I want us to understand. First of all, this isn't really one of them, but I want you to see this. Everywhere Jesus goes, from Mark chapter 1 all the way to the end of the gospel, everywhere Jesus goes, he encounters people in need of hope. Just as a quick sidebar, the reality is every place that you and I go, whether it's into the grocery store, whether it's into our home, whether it's into our community, whether it's into our workplace, everywhere we go, Monday through Saturday, even on Sunday morning, everywhere we go, we are encountering people who are in need of hope, who are in need of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what are we as a church? How are we, how are we responding to that reality? Here's a few lessons that I think emerge from just the first part of this text. Number one, we can't allow seemingly dangerous areas to keep us from doing ministry and proclaiming the hope of the gospel. Um, think about just for a minute, and I'm going to give this to you quickly, and the last two points I have will come about even more quickly. Jonah, think about Jonah for just a second. If you know the story of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. He was called to go preach to the people of Nineveh. The Ninevites were some of the most wicked and godless people that ever walked the face of the earth. One of the things that the people of Nineveh would do if they conquered a, a group of people, they would chop off their heads, they would put their heads on stakes in the front of their home, almost as a, as a laughing stock to those that would walk through saying, hey, we're better than you. They were godless, they were evil, they were wicked. And Jonah has been asked by God to go preach to these wicked, godless individuals. Um, and and we, can, we can be hard on Jonah if we want. 
But, but let's all have that, that initial gut check and see, are we all going to sign up for that, that task right off the bat? Probably not. Probably because I mean, we're talking about people that hated Israel. They despised them. And he knows what they will do if he even comes into their region. So what does Jonah do? Jonah goes the opposite direction. He flees. Um, you know the story in Jonah chapter 2, into Jonah chapter 1, because he's going the opposite of direction of what God's actually calling him to do. Uh, God prepares a fish and prepares a storm and a fish, and he ends up inside the belly of the fish for three days, and he does repent, and he ends up going to Nineveh, and they do repent, and then Jonah's angry um, at the very end. It's, I'm not preaching on Jonah this morning, but it's a very, very interesting, interesting text. But we can't seemingly... We can't allow these dangerous areas to keep us from doing ministry and proclaiming the hope of the gospel. We can't avoid difficult areas. We can't avoid dangerous places because all people need to hear the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus could have said, you know what, Tyre and Sidon, I know we, uh, we don't have a really good relationship with them. It'd be dangerous if I go up there. Um, they hate us, we hate them. So I'm just gonna stay in my comfort zone here in, in the Galilee region and, and hopefully something will trickle over into Tyre and Sidon. But man, I'm gonna avoid that area because it's dangerous. That, that's not the approach that God can call us to. There's severe consequences if we say no just because of potential danger. Why? Because eternal souls are at stake. Christ didn't just die for the Galilee region. He died for the people of Tyre and Sidon. He died for the people of Nineveh. He died for those in Iraq and Iran and those in Russia and Ukraine. He died for all. I hope you understand that this morning. And there are a lot of people that are in need of hope, a lot of people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can't say no just because, man, that's a dangerous place or this is pretty comfortable. I feel like this is, this is within my sweet spot. But if God is, is, is nudging us, we should not say no, even if it is potentially dangerous. Mark Batterson tells story of a modern-day martyr in his book, Chase the Lion. Listen to these words. With his hands tied behind his back, missionary J.W. Tucker was beaten. And then with 60 of his Christian compatriots, he was thrown into the crocodile-infested river. It wasn't ISIS or Al-Qaeda who claimed responsibility. The attack took place on November 24th, 1964, at the hands of the Congolese rebels. Our natural instinct is to feel sorry for Tucker, whose earthly life was seemingly cut short. But life can't be cut short when it, when it lasts for all eternity. Holy empathy for his wife and children who survived the terrorist attack is biblically mandated, but heaven gained a hero, a hero and a long line of heroes who trace their genealogy back to the first Christian martyr, Stephen. The grand scheme of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, eternal gain infinitely offsets earthly pain. God doesn't promise us happily ever after. He promises so much more than that happily forever after. It was that eternal perspective that inspired J.W. Tucker to risk his earthly life for the gospel. Tucker didn't fear death because he had already died to self. It wasn't an uncalculated risk that led J.W. Tucker into the Congo during a civil war. He counted the cost with his missionary friend Morris Plotz. Plotz tried to convince his friend not to go. If you go in, he prophetically pleaded, you won't come out. To which Tucker responded, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. We can't dismiss, we can't allow seemingly dangerous places to be off limits because they too are in desperate need of hearing the good news 
of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the missionaries that we support that, that are a part of the Live Dead movement that have said yes to the call of God upon their life and they're going to unreached areas where it's very dangerous in order to share and to communicate the hope of the gospel. And I'm thankful for you all who continue to support and pray and financially give to those missionaries so that the gospel, the good news, can indeed reach those dangerous areas. But let's not Let's not just step back and say, okay, I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to give to them. If God is nudging in our heart to do more, I'm not saying that he's calling any of you. Maybe he is. Maybe he's nudging or laying up on your heart to go. We have to be obedient to the call of God upon our life. Number two, we can't limit our ministry influence just to places that are comfortable and easy. No, there's a mental health crisis that we can't ignore the need for hope just because it's hard or we don't want to talk about it. There's unreached people groups that we can't ignore just because of the difficulty of the task. There's an orphan crisis that we can't ignore, the homeless and the fatherless, because it seems like a daunting and impossible task. We cannot limit our ministry to just places that are comfortable and easy. If that were the case, Jesus would have stayed in the region of Galilee. If that were the case, Jesus probably wouldn't even have called disciples to himself. He would have probably just tried to do it on his own. Because anytime you bring other opinions on board, it gets a little bit more challenging. And so the reality is we, we can say, you know what, I just want to be comfortable. I want to do what's easy. And if that's the approach we take, we're seemingly saying no to what God has called us to do. We cannot limit our ministry influences just to places that are comfortable and easy. God didn't call the church to go into the easy and comfortable places to proclaim the hope of the gospel. We can't target places of prominence only with the hope of reaping a large harvest. Um, I think ten, the tendency is, and especially when we talk about church planning, the tendency is let's go to you know let's go to the large areas. There's lots of people there, but there's other places that need the hope and the ministry of the gospel. We can't let a sense of pride or a feeling of unworthiness get in the way of experiencing God's power. We see that this woman she humbled herself. D.L. Moody said, Jesus sent no one away except those who were full of themselves. And what a, what a valuable truth for us to understand. And here's the question I want us to consider. Have I un unintentionally created a boundary indicating to God that I will go this far, but no further? I will go here, but this area is off limits. I will do this, but this is off limits. Folks, that is a very dangerous and I'm not just speaking to you, speaking to me. That's a very dangerous prayer to pray. God, I'll do this, but I'm not sure about this. I'll go this far, but mm, definitely not for me. And let me just warn you, if you pray that prayer, there's a good chance God might nudge you in that direction. God has a sense of humor as well. The power of God's kingdom cannot be limited to a narrow domain, but must extend to all people. We see that in this text. He could have stayed in the region of Galilee, but he travels north. And as he travels north, his ministry begins to expand and God's power is revealed. Let me give these last two and I promise I'll give them to you quickly. Second aspect of this unconventional kingdom we see in this text is that the healing power of God often extends beyond human rationale. Look at the text, Mark 7, verse 29. Good answer, he said. Now go home, speaking to the woman. Now go home for the demon has left your daughter. Keep in mind here what I want you to see. The, the daughter was never present. 
The woman came, she begged Jesus for healing for her daughter who wasn't even present. And after this encounter, this conversation, when she realized how significant the miracle really was, Jesus looked at her and said, okay, go home. The demon has left your daughter. And then we read this, Mark 7, verse 31 through 35. Jesus left Tyre, went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Ten Towns. A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Epapha, which means be open. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Here's what I want you to see, a couple of things. Number one, God's healing power comes in so many shapes and sizes. Uh, proximity of God to the sick is not a concern from God. Look at these two texts. Uh, the woman uh, came on behalf of her daughter. Her daughter was never present, and, and there was no formula that took place. He looked at the woman and said, return home. Your daughter has been healed. There is no formula that God acts, activates to bring healing. Uh, there's no word that's spoken for the woman. He doesn't say, Epaphatha, be opened, or get out of her, or some other word that's spoken. He just says, go home, your daughter's healed. But then look at the man that's deaf and has this speech impediment, a much different experience. He, he puts his fingers in his ears, and, and, and quite, the, quite the experience, Put his, puts his fingers in his ears, he spits on his fingers, and then he touches the man's tongue. Now, would any, any of you in here allow that to happen? If some strange man is coming up to me and is sticking his fingers in my ears and then he spits on it and then he wants to touch my tongue, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you know, go get some hand sanitizer first and then we can talk, all right? But, but that's what happens. So you can see there's a whole different experience here. And so the healing of God comes in so many different shapes and sizes. The timing of God's healing may not always fit our timetable. But remember, Remember, we only see through a glass dimly. And, and I could probably spend a lot of time, and I don't have a lot of time to spend here when it comes to, to healing, when it comes to God's healing. And, and, and folks, I, I wish I had an answer for you when it comes to why he heals here and doesn't hear. The reality is we still look through a glass dimly. We cannot understand fully how or why or when God acts or doesn't act, um, but that should never stop us from praying and believing for God to move and to offer this healing. The, the woman with the issue of blood, remember, for 12 years, for 12 years she suffered. She tried everything everything she could, and she was poor trying to get to a place where she could finally experience healing. Then she touched the hem of his robe, and she experienced the healing power of God. The healing we often seek is physical, or the healing God ultimately longs to provide is spiritual. Healing of the deaf man, it certainly can indicate to us that there is a spiritual deafness in our culture and there is a need for understanding, which certainly lines up with the theme in Mark. Mark often will, will speak about how there are those who have ears to hear, but they don't really hear. They don't really understand. They don't really grasp the disciples. They put Jesus into a box and they cannot fully understand the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Many believers have come, become deafened to God's voice. Oftentimes, because there's so much noise around us these days that we fail to really tune in to the most important voice. Sometimes the, the hurry and the bustle, they drown out God's still small voice. So to tune into his voice, times of retreating become necessary. Notice what he does with this deaf man. Um, he, he actually pulls him aside. He, he pulls him away from really the, the, the hustle and the bustle. Jesus led him away, it says in the text, from the crowd. And this man was deaf. He wasn't hearing anything. 
But, but there's something much deeper here. It's not just about the healing of this deaf man, but there is this sense that there is a spiritual healing that's gonna take place because even in our culture today, there is this spiritual deafness, this lack of understanding, our failure to grasp what God is doing. And sometimes we have to retreat. Sometimes we have to get away from the noise around us in order to tune in to allow our spiritual ears to hear what God is really trying to say, to refocus our thoughts, to distance ourselves from distractions, to experience then the beauty of fellowship with God. In our pursuit of physical healing, let's not miss the opportunity for spiritual healing to take place. Sometimes all we're looking for is the spiritual healing, but God wants to do something deeper and something better and something greater. Sometimes we're we're looking for the the, the physical healing, but God is more interested in a relationship being restored or for for restoration to take place or for our lives to be made new. Physical healing may not always occur on this side of eternity. I want you to hear this, and then the last point I'll give to you and we'll be done. Because this is something that I think we, if we're honest, we all wrestle with this at some level. And from a human perspective, again, our our perspective is still limited. Physical healing may not always occur on this side of eternity. But that does not diminish God's character at all. If you've been praying for somebody for a week, for a year, for 10 years, for 20 years, and that healing never comes, at least from the perspective that you were looking for, that does not diminish at all God's character and his ability to heal. And the reality is we can't see the big picture. We see through a very, very short, small, slim glass that is dark, that is dim. We cannot fully understand. He is sovereign. He is transcendent. He is above time and space, and he can see all. He knows all. And at the end of the day, we just have to simply trust his, char- his character. God can and still does provide physical healing. How many would agree with that? Amen. He does, and he still does. And we should still pray, believe, and expect God to heal. I absolutely believe that. that, that the fact that not everyone on this side of eternity is going to be healed, that should not stop us from praying and believing and expecting him to heal. We need to be persistent in our prayers because sometimes even in those prayers, maybe that healing doesn't come, but who knows what God is doing in me or in a community of people who are praying and believing and maybe how God is bringing other people together. Regardless of the outcome, we must always give God glory as the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise King and Lord. At the end of the day, we pray, we believe, we ask, we're persistent, we plead, but we still come back to a place, regardless of outcome, good and or bad, we must always give God glory. He's the sovereign king, the all-wise one, the all-powerful one, the one who knows all. We need to understand, this is probably the biggest key, we need to understand, even if that physical healing doesn't come here now, ultimate healing for the child of God, physical and spiritual, will come eternity. That's why you often hear at funerals, you often hear for those that have known Christ and have passed, you often hear words quoted from Psalm to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. 
And, and I know the, the reality is the, these people that we saw in our text here, the, the woman that, that had a daughter who had an evil spirit in her and this deaf man, yes, they were physically here, healed here and now. The woman with the issue of blood, yes, she was healed. The, the girl that was raised to life, yes, she was healed. But guess what? All of them, even Lazarus, Lazarus was raised to life. Uh, we don't read about it anywhere else in scripture, but, but there was a time where Ra- Lazarus was placed back in a tomb. But on this side of eternity, that's the reality, but we also recognize that our ultimate healing for the child of God comes when we meet him face to face. No more, no more death, no more sickness. Yeah, something to be excited about when we meet him face to face. Finally, number three, would you go ahead and stand with me, worship team, if you would come. I'll give this last one to you quickly. Very simply, the gospel cannot be contained. Notice how many times, and for various reasons, but notice how many times Jesus would say, you know, keep this a secret, don't tell anyone. Um, there's a lot with that. There was this messianic secret aspect that was still going on and, and didn't want, you know, the full, uh, you know, until the cross and, and, and the resurrection occurred, they wouldn't begin to fully understand what was taking place. But the reality is every time God's power and his presence was at work and moving, it could not be contained. Why? Because we're people who love to share a lot of things, especially good news. We read in Mark chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and give speech to those who cannot speak. Good news was never meant to be contained. The gospel was never designed to just be kept to ourselves. Oh, this is great. So thankful for what God's doing in my life, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it. It's not how it was designed. That's not what was meant to be. Because what we have to offer is way better, way more significant than what the world can offer. We're quick to share about this thing that's going on or this activity or this new thing that's going on. But for whatever reason, we're a little bit slower to share about what God is doing, about the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. So really, here's my challenge for us as a congregation. Because remember, we're talking about an unconventional Jesus who is ushered in an unconventional kingdom. And he's brought forth an unconventional message. Let's be a people who make this good news, the gospel. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, sinless life. Died on the cross, was resurrected three days later. He's alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying for all of us. Let's be a people who declares that good news to the world. It's a lot of things we share on Facebook. I mean, we, sometimes we, we share things that most often people probably don't care about. Um, we're quick to share things. Let's share the most important thing. Let's be people who proclaim what really matters. 
good news, gospel, Jesus Christ. Let's be people who make that news known. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Remember I said everywhere Jesus went, every place he went to, whether it was Galilee, Jerusalem, Tyre, Sidon, didn't matter, wherever he went, all around him, people were looking for hope, looking for answers. Folks, that's no different today. Everywhere we go, every store we go into, every house we go into, every community that we go into, every school that we go into, every workplace that we go into, there are still people who are looking for answers. They're looking for hope. And in many cases, they're trying a lot of things that the world has to offer to satisfy that hunger and that craving. When we have what's best, when we have to offer them what can truly satisfy, and that is Jesus Christ. We telling God, your eyes closed, no one's looking around, are we telling God that I'll go this far but no further? Are we putting parameters on the ministry that God is calling us to? Am I skeptical of God's healing power? Am I keeping the good news to myself even when I know there's people around me that need to hear what Christ has done?